Hey, let's go, let's go. Just stop where you are and let's pray and then you can mill around while we get oriented, okay? Fold your hands, close your eyes. Here we go, here we go. Ever-blessed Trinity, in mercy we commend this day to you. May we, body and soul, in all our ways and undertakings, live within your grace, enlarge our hearts, open our lips, that we may praise your name and work for that which is holy. With your Holy Spirit, and Jesus Christ, we pray, O Heavenly Father. Amen. Okay, good to see you. Um, happy All Saints. We've, we've, you know, we're into the busy season now, so here we go. So I've been trying to make sense of a chaotic thing, and uh, that means sometimes uh, we have to back and fill a little bit and kind of look at things. During the pandemic, uh, I had a, a long Zoom with John Kleinig, we were talking about the things that hold the church together and hold St. John together. And you know these basically as beauty and community, mercy, uh, and Christology. And I had asked him whether there was another thing he thought was on the horizon. And he thought we ought to test the notion of people of security, of people feeling safe and secure, which has turned out to be fairly insightful, especially in the last year or so. So I just to point number one... Um, you know, we live in a world that's a bit wobbly now. And if you watch news or read news or listen to people, it's always us and them and, you know, elections last week and, you know, we won, they lost and all this kind of stuff. Really the back end and forth and, and, and defining other people as, as evil and they got to be destroyed and our side is good and the difficulty in all those things because what happens even now, you know, I don't know what emails you get, but people are constantly sending me emails about the new civil war coming, the second civil war. That I probably got five emails from people this week about, you know, and you kind of go, huh, and they come from Christians, so then I always kind of go, huh, how does that work exactly, being a Christian and uh, agitating for civil war, huh, you wonder about that. And so what, what happens, though, is there's a psychic toll to all of this, as you know, People feel nervous, they feel betrayed, they don't, um, they're uneasy. The number of people who can't sleep at night is off the charts that I've talked to who just can't sleep. Medicated people, you can't get, you know, if you want to see a psychiatrist or psychologist, you're talking about a a time in January or February to to get your initial visit. Uh, You know, things are just, things are just sort of upside down. Given all of that, you know, life goes on, and we're still the church, and how do we proceed, and what do we do? That's the question, the overriding question. And what I'm trying to do is get you to move to a place where you're not angry all the time, where you're not irritated all the time, where you're not seeking vengeance, where you can turn the other cheek, where you can pray for your enemy. Yesterday we read um, the Didache, uh, the earliest uh, pastoral, basically pastoral theology. So, you know, it's somewhere between the death of Paul, it's within 50 or 100 years of that, and the very first thing they say is there's two ways, there's a way of life, there's a way of death, and then he says, we're on the way of life, and he describes what it looks like, and that early now, 80, 100 AD, it says, and we will have no enemies, right? This isn't a new idea. So how do we, how do, we do that when you're, this is point number one, when uh, people are in great pain because they're alienated, so they're, you know, they're at odds with each other and they're lonely and they feel like they're being pushed around and, and people are threatening them. All you have to do is have a Twitter feed. You don't have to, you have to open it. If you just read, you know, if you just read the, the things that come, you know, three and four are threats against somebody. It's really remarkable. 
So, you know, what shall we do, right? What shall we do? I've been trying to help you or help us move that way, especially because we want to be the church. And, you know, as I've observed, you're pretty homogeneous, but you're not all exactly the same. And, uh, you know, how do we live together and go on as Christians? That's the, that's, you know, for our good and for the good of the world, how do we do that? It's a fairly simple question, but it's kind of a very complex answer because uh, people are so bollocked up. So I've tried to push you in different directions, but today at least, let's talk about the notion of trust and truth. So two, behind the question of trust, whom can I trust, lies this question, who's telling me the truth, right? So truth says, you know, who's reliable? That's one way to talk about it. Who can I rely on? Another way that's classically been talked about is what's universal? What holds in every nation and time? What holds across cultures and for persons? Uh, you know, or you can actually have it as simple as who's for me and who's against me. That doesn't always tell you what the truth is, but it tells you something about your relationships. You know, classically, it's been what's good, what's beautiful, what's honest, what's fair, right? And so um, you can use your own experience to try to figure some of these things out. You know, usually we're in a time where, you know, I, you know, just ever, you know, I'm not trying to offend you, but the, the, you know, the normal thing is just trust the science, okay? That's got everybody on edge in both directions. So just try not just, everybody just grip your chair and take a big breath, okay? So, um, you know, or be rational. I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, I know a couple of people who are rational, but almost nobody. I mean, almost no, nobody who's rational anymore. It's, uh, it's really quite remarkable. So, um, but there was a, there was a really interesting, what, well, so a couple things for you to think about. There's other ways of knowing besides science and reason. For example, I ran for you intentionally last week or the week before the quote from Benedict where he said, overwhelming beauty is much more convincing than rational thought. Did you catch that? So overwhelming beauty is then a way of knowing things. So this morning when you hear the cello, right? So I'm fairly convinced that there'll only be a cello and an oboe in heaven because really you don't need any other instruments. Sorry, pianist and organist, but really, I mean, if you have a cello and a... Okay, just kidding. But, uh, you know, I mean, you listen to the cello this morning, you kind of go, oh... No, it does need the horn section. The horns were pretty fabulous last week, by the way. I, I didn't know that we had the budget for Tower of Power, but it was cool that they showed up. So, <laughs> sorry, you have to be a particular age to, you know. Although you can still see them at the Greek Theater in Berkeley. Keep going. So anyway, um, for most of a century, here's the interesting thing. This is a great example of reaping what we sow. So for almost 100 years, um, so, you know, 40s, 50s, for almost 100 years, the notion of scoffing at truth has, um, or let me put it this way, for almost 100 years, people have scoffed at the notion of any kind of truth. And it's caught on finally, you know. It works its way from, you know, intellectuals to academics to university faculties to students who finally grow up and get in charge. And then, you know, it takes a couple of generations. But, you know, we're come to a place where nothing is true. And then you can do whatever you want. Well, welcome to our world. This is how it feels when everybody does unbridled what they want or threatens to do what they want. So truth has been out of style. And what's replaced it is, and you can just test this. You don't have to believe me because who knows if I'm telling you the truth. But just ask yourself as you look around, uh, almost always, especially as a pastor now, when I talk to people, they 
uh, greet me with suspicion and skepticism, right? You couldn't possibly be telling me the truth. You couldn't possibly know anything about, you know, um, as I said to, uh, well, no, I shouldn't. That's never mind. That's too sassy. So, uh, yeah. see, the, see the Holy Spirit right there at work? That was beautiful. So, um, you know, I, I'll just observe that, this notion that you have to be suspicious of everybody. There's actually a, you know, this is an academic thing. It's called a hermeneutic of suspicion. You always presume that the person that's talking to you is telling you a lie and has to be deconstructed, taken apart, right? Or people are skeptical, right? What can we possibly know? Or nihilism, the, the conviction that there's nothing is true. And if you talk to people, you often, they've often, even at a young age, they've worked themselves to a point where nothing is true. And if nothing is true, I can do what I want, right? Just listen for this. Um, now I'm going to see if I can rescue you from it. But first you have to suffer a bit more. So turn the page. On the bright side, truth has had a bit of a revival lately. So this is very interesting to me because it hasn't been an academic or intellectual or philosophical revival. It's purely based on cash. And so, uh, you know, we, we've, we've, we've had first all kinds of people who are selling you truth, right? So every 10th Facebook or 20th Facebook post is about open your eyes or if you know what I know or if you could only see, or if you'd wake up, right? Pick one. That's from the right and the left, right? So we've moved through these phases of, do you remember, if you're old enough, you remember 15 years ago things were truthy? Do you remember when truthy was? It didn't stick for very long, but things were, they weren't true, they were truthy. And then the next thing is we move to my truth. Tell us your truth. That's my truth. I affirm your truth. Which basically just is, is just, that's not about truth at all. It's just about my feelings. My experience, how I react, but I mean, truth is a much larger category. So um, we went kind of from, and then we, we sort of got to hidden truth, right? All the conspiracy theories over the past few years, and then kind of elitist truth. Uh, you know, I belong to a group that knows the most, and so we should be in charge of other people. That's coming from both the right and from the left, if you want. Uh, you know, and then of course now, you know, Harvard's motto used to be Veritas, truth, for church and uh, for Christ and church, it's had several iterations. So if you're a Harvard grad, I'm not pounding you too hard. But, uh, I mean, I'm sorry you couldn't go to a better West Coast school, but other than that, you know. <laughs> uh, you know, it used to be, you know, there were several iterations of truth for Christ and church, and of course now it's just veritas, truth. And you're kind of like, huh. And then, of course, you get, you know, um, the counterpunch, the, fact, the, the facts, the news, the truth, the CNBA moniker for there, the facts, the news, the truth. I always think to myself, really? You're going to actually tell me the truth? And then the New York Times of all places, right? And I read the New York Times. I read something from the New York Times every day. It's like, I'm, this isn't like, don't go all bad people on them, although they do make me a little nervous from minute to minute. But nevertheless, um, they want a bunch of awards. You know, this is a thing where Newspapers give awards to other newspapers, right? So they won their own awards. It was beautiful, just like a participation trophy. Ah, oh, geez, I really, that's bad. I should, I should go to confession. You'd think I didn't just have the Eucharist a few minutes ago. Think how horrible I would be if I didn't. Okay, so here's the moniker right there. I mean, you see it right there above the, above the Subway sandwich sign in New York City. Truth, there it is, Right? Truth is hard to know. Truth is hard to find. Truth is hard to hear. Do you see how that sets them up as the, the font of wisdom? So we've found truth. 
we figured it out, we're going to deliver. Now, it might be a little hard for you plebes, but you know what? Just stick with us for $299 a year, Saturday deliveries free, digital access and archives included, and we will tell you the truth. These are the same people who, you know, for the last 50 years have denied that there's anything like truth, right? I, I used to, when I was at Princeton, true story, we used to go to church, stop at a store, buy New York Times, and I would read, and I'm not kidding you, every word, comma, jot, tittle, period in the New York Times, every word in the Sunday New York Times it would take about six or seven hours to be ready to go at Princeton on Sunday morning, or on Monday morning. Because if I didn't, like, I'm, my flank is exposed, Right, so I, you know, I've read. I mean, I read this for years, page after page after page after page, denial of the truth. And now suddenly, to sell a newspaper, guess what? Truth is back. That makes me not so trusting, right? I feel like somebody might be taking advantage of me. That's not that. I mean, I know people who work at the Times, and they're good people. But I'm just saying, you know, collectively, I have a hermeneutic of suspicion. So. Uh, you know, all of these people, this is kind of toward the bottom now, all these people are begging for your trust. And normally what people will say in these kind of situations is, how is Jesus any different? How is the church any different? What have you got that's different than everybody else? You're just one more, you know, special interest. And frankly, the church has comported itself often as another special interest. Really bad with money, really bad with sex, really bad with safety, really bad with a lot of things. And yet, all that does is put us in the category of being human, because humans are really bad at a lot of things. However, if you could work your way past to Jesus, I've turned to page three, or I've turned to point three. How do we know what's true? Well, Jesus engaged the question. So you remember the story. Jesus gets arrested, and they're trying to figure out what to do with him. They bring him to Pilate. He had this very interesting discussion. Are you a king? Right? Do you have a kingdom? And then, you know, my kingdom is not of this world, right? And then Jesus has this seminal phrase where he said, I've come to tell the truth. And Pilate responds, like somebody in America in 2021, hey, what is truth? Like, everybody pulls that scam here. So, okay, Jesus is right. I mean, this is one of the interesting things about, I often say to you, we've returned to the first couple centuries of the of Christian church. The church has already been through this. So we can stop being as nervous as we are, and we can be confident about the way through. Now, having said that, uh, I just want a little bit of a disclaimer here. Often when people talk about truth, and this is one of the reasons we're so problematic right now in how we think in America is, Here's truth, okay? And if, you, if this isn't true for you, then just step away right now. Lay your head down and just kind of take a little nap. We will mop you up, and then we'll send you to the late service. Most, two plus two is four, right? So mathematics is a closed system. Uh, it, 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 it has its own, um, it concludes its own presuppositions, right? It, it's controlled, it's boxed in its most basic form. And, you know, you can agree with it or not, but it's pretty easy to show that if you have a thing called one and a thing called two, that when you get to two and two, there's four of those, right? But most truth doesn't work that way. 
Most truth is not 100% lock. This is all the problem about, you know, follow the science, or I believe in truth, or you're, you're superstitious, or I'm skeptical of this. Very few things that you believe work in the way of two plus two is four. Most of the things that you and I believe, we have seen a little bit, and we trust people. I remember, you know, this morning I was thinking about it, I remember, I should check this story because everybody else can Google it, but... I remember that um, Kant once gave a story, uh, or was, sorry, Kant once gave a lecture about Berlin, and um, he described it down to alleyways and stores and boutiques and, and sewers, and somebody came in the audience, came up afterwards and said, he said, you must, you must love it when you visit Berlin. And he said to him, I've never been there, Right? He trusted that these things existed, stores and alleyways and sewer systems, but he'd never seen it. He just trusted people. And most of our knowledge works that way. Most of the things, you know what? I take my car to Rich Red. I say, Rick, make it stop rattling and change a few of these things. I come back and it runs... I believe in Rich Wren. It's that easy. I have the same experience with Jim Butcher. I got leaky pipes. I go upstairs. He does some secret stuff down there. Then it's not leaking anymore. I'm like, I believe. Praise Jesus, I believe. <laughs> right? I don't know what's going on. I didn't see it. I just know it was beautiful when it was all done. Start to think about that. Very few things do you examine jot and tittle, Right? The reason I'm saying that to you is I'm just going to give you a couple of things to think about with Jesus, and then this is where I'm going to conclude, just in case you know I get distracted. Uh, what I'm going to suggest to you is if you bundle these things together, they become a quite powerful witness or way of life that you might even begin to describe as true. And it might even be as true as all the other things, you know, things like Aaron Rodgers is immunized, true or false? <laughs> Pastor Nelson, just checking. <laughs> all right, so, uh, you know, sorry, but it's, I mean, what else do Bears fans really have, okay? <laughs> so to make fun of the Packers, there's really not much else besides that. So... All right, number four, some very basic claims from Jesus. Now, here's the thing. Here's what I don't want you to think I'm doing. I'm not proof texting you and saying, you should just shape up and believe this stuff. I'm not saying that. And I'm not saying, if you bundle these all tightly together like a bale of hay, it'll just be perfect. All I'm saying to you is, huh, if you would just entertain the thought, or as the scriptures say, taste and see that the Lord is good. If you would just kind of consider this, do you think that there would be enough evidence for you to believe in Jesus as much as you believe that there are alleys and sewers in Berlin? Could we reach that level? And if you actually believe that, I mean, if you buy a plane ticket to Berlin, you actually think that the plane is going to touch down in a place that exists, even if you've never been there. In the same way that if you're a Christian, you actually believe on All Saints Day, you're, after you die, you're going to touch down in a place that exists even though you've never been. Do you see kind of just the basic analogy here? I mean, I'm not trying to bolt this down too tightly. I'm just trying to get people to think in a general sort of way, right? Just think about Jesus the way you think about other things. And frankly, think about other things much more carefully. So just from Jesus himself, right? 
I am other. It's a very important claim. I'm not like other people, right? Jesus said, I'm otherworldly. I'm actually from above, or I'm not of this world. This is a basic claim. This is a simple true or false. Jesus is either just like everybody else or he's not. There's some evidence that he wasn't like other people, like he could walk on water and raise the dead and make blind people see and touch lepers and they were clean. And by the way, there's that thing about the resurrection from the dead and hundreds and thousands of people saw him. But, you know, how much proof do you need? At least the notion that Jesus says, I'm other. Now, you can feel me already slipping into apologetic artillery. You know, I'm just about ready to unload, which would be sort of an aggressive and hopeless sort of way of proceeding. Because after all, that would presume that people are rational, not you people, but people in general. And rationality has no attraction to people. Nobody has said, How, what do you think since I was like 22? Right? Now people only say, how do you feel? Right? It's diagnostic. How do you feel? I feel you. I think like you, I feel it. You know, how, you know, right? So just take it on the face value. Jesus says, I'm other. Like I have a different address. Just, so just put it out there. You can figure out whether you want to believe that or not. But Jesus says, I'm other. More than that, um, Jesus says, I am light. Now this is terribly important right now because most people I bump into are in darkness. They are dark in their worldview. They are dark about their own future. And when they go to bed at night, if they sleep at all, they're often tortured by what's dark and demonic. Right? What's worrisome and troublesome? Okay? So, you know, people who, you know, I, I think I used this in a sermon, but, you know, St. Teresa... Uh, had a dream once about going to hell and she said it wasn't hot, it was cold and I, I walked through the mud and then they tucked me into uh, a hole that had been cut out of the wall uh, and sealed me in dark and cold and alone. This is not how people normally think about hell but it's a great description. Right? And of course the antidote for that would be light. Now you're free to evaluate whether or not being aggressive, hurting people, undercutting them, betraying them, hating them, or loving them, helping them, being merciful to them, and turning the other cheek. You're free to evaluate which of those is better and worse, is good and evil. But at least just you know, think about it. So Jesus says, I'm from another place, and I bring light. Okay, these are really, they're just basic human claims. Um, sidebar, which is, um, the increasing I don't even know if I'm going uh, just if you have kids you should just pay attention to what they're doing I almost weekly now bump into things where people are embracing the demonic proudly uh, just watch books and watch there, there are, there's a rash of books and games um, about casting spells for little kids coming out for Christmas time right you just, 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 you just watch, okay? Je predict. You know, you just watch. Um, 
the demonic, which is the darkness, is, I, I'm just startled by the number of people I know who are rational people who are sort of embracing that, right? Just, just be careful. So, but I can't, I can't do all that today, but it's the opposite of light. And dar- darkness, demonic, works by force and enslavement. It's the craziest thing that the very people who want to be ultimately free are the people who are very willing to enslave other people. But of course, that's how oppression always works. So Jesus says, I'm other, I'm light. And then, you know, this great claim, I am truth, right? So you can begin to think about what constitutes truth. I'm reliable, uh, I'm solid ground, I'm certain, I'm secure, I'm safe. You know, you have to kind of figure out where untruth takes you. What's normally the reaction to the opposite, to lie, to betrayal. How do you feel when you're betrayed by a really good friend? How does that feel? How do you feel when your boss lies to you? Right? And we just have, we still have enough natural law, conscience in our heart, that we have reactions to these things. All I'm asking you to do is observe this. I'm not trying to like bundle this up. A, therefore B, and B, therefore C. I'm not bundling up. Most things don't work that way. I'm just asking you to begin to stack the evidence up like leaves in your backyard. You know, it's like, okay, I'm other, and then um, I'm true, and I'm light, and then just keep going. Crazy stuff. I'm resurrection. It's a hard day for me this morning because I had a friend who, a friend of a father who died just before the service. and I'd been spending some time with him yesterday, and he was, um, so this is going to, for you who all sit next to somebody who's dying, uh, the initial back and forth was, he's babbling, right? And I said, interesting, what is, you know, then he sort of says, here's what he's saying. Um, if I could die and have this be my final quote, I'd be like, my life meant something. He said, he doesn't recognize his family anymore, but he turns and looks to him and says, if you don't believe in miracles, you don't believe in anything, right? I mean, if you sat next to somebody, if you can take it, if you sat next to somebody you love who's dying, it's a remarkable thing for people who are in faith, right? So this guy, I mean, he's suffering, he's 93, I mean, he's a great Christian, Um, you know, then... uh, you know, a little while later, he, he um, opens his eyes and says, Christos Anesti. Right? Christ is risen. He's kind of gone. Right? Then he looks at his son, who he doesn't recognize. His son says to him, Do you know who I am? And the father said, you are a young Christian looking for forgiveness. If that were my dad's last words to me, even if he didn't know my name, isn't that remarkable stuff? You kind of go, that's the guy who's been, he's 93, he's been to liturgy every day of his life, goes to the Holy Supper, surrounded by icons, and what's left? All of those things are other. They are light. They are truth. They are resurrection. Here's the thing. I'm not, this is not a philosophical proof. This is just stacking up the evidence. Right? Step, and by evidence, I only mean things that are happening. 
Right? So just observe the things that are happening. And I encourage you to do this. Just observe the things that are happening around you, fairly, of course, and open-mindedly, but, you know, I'm other, I'm light, I'm truth, I'm resurrection. And then this great, you know, this great claim, Christos Anesti. Christ is risen. I am the way, the truth, and Zoe, right? We, where we get the name Zoe, but Zoe, not bios, not just existence. I am body, soul, and spirit, heaven and earth, spiritually alive. I am everything you were always meant to be in Eden. That's what Zoe means. And so you look at Jesus and you sort of like, so, I mean, here's the thing. I mean, experiment on your own. Pick any anchor you want, turn it on, and watch it for half an hour, right? Then, you know what, I don't care. Go home and watch one sportscaster or or football guy today for half an hour, and then, you know, read one newspaper account, and then look at Jesus in Scripture, or just stare at an icon for half an hour, and you let me know what happens. You let me know who's other and true, who's resurrection, who's life. Who fulfills your deepest needs? Who can convince you that life isn't just about despair and destruction and darkness, but actually when people come together and they're merciful and kind, when they turn the other cheek, when they love each other, when they support each other, that you get a group of people like this, and this is otherworldly, as the church says today, this is heaven on earth, right? This is no sort of like, hey, I'm going to you know, go on you know, some Sunday morning talk show and try to convince the world because, of course, people will bring another hermeneutic, another set of rules. But just in the most basic way, open your eyes and see what happens around you. right? And start to just let them brush into each other. And what does it mean for somebody to die when their last words are about forgiveness and resurrection and miracles? That's a life worth living, right? And then finally, and we've done a bit of this before, which is, you know, I am love. And Jesus is quite clear that love is this. If you turn the page, I've sort of given you the definitions we've been through, but love is incarnation. So love takes flesh, the Christmas story. Or love touches us. Often I said to you, the gospel is touch. So Jesus repeatedly touches people in the ear with his words, and he touches them on the eyes, you know, with his fingers and spit and mud, and he, you know, he touches them um, with life when he resurrects them, well, the boy from Nain, for example, or Lazarus. You know, the love touches, and love is always agopic, which is for somebody else. And of course, this may be the greatest thing in our world that's hardly anybody is for anybody else. As Paul says, you know, hardly will a righteous man die for a righteous man. But what about a righteous man who dies for the unrighteous? Nobody's willing to do that, right? So, and this is why love is the primary virtue from which all other virtues are derived. Because the Lord didn't have to create us, but he created us. And the Lord didn't have to chase us when we fell, but he chased us. And the Lord didn't have to give us mercy, but he gave us mercy, not what we deserve. And he did that so we could all come home again and celebrate with him for what we were meant to be, for what is true, for what is otherworldly, for what is light, 
big, big letters, light, capital L, truth, capital T, right? Divine things, heavenly things. And so, um, just kind of the basic way for you to think about this is, when you just sort of think about, you know, there's, for, I just give you, it's so easy, right? So you have this great defense now of pornography and sex work. So it used to be, you know, that we would say, oh, that's really difficult, and people are broken down by that, and nobody's a winner here, and this is a form of enslavement. Now, you know, I mean, you have candidates who run on the platform of, you know, pornography and sex work, and you kind of go, this is one of the greatest problems for our children, Pastor Nelson. I mean, this is why, Nelson, you're so lucky that you have him, because he's figured it all out, and he knows how to talk to your kids. It's a rare combination, and kids still like him. But one of the greatest, not like you, who they... I mean, you know, pornography, one of the biggest problems we have is kids that start to get... Anybody who's got a cell phone can get pornography. So that means kindergarten, first grade, second grade, even if you're locked down, they go to the next-door neighbors or the kid who's got a cell phone at school. And kids' primary image about relationships and sex are formed by... Um, despair and enslavement and not caring about other people and only self-satisfaction and using people and tossing them away. You kind of go. But see, on the other hand, it's so easy because you can look at these things and all you have to do is... Remember long ago when we were... when we did our first um, gig at Westfield House to help them build things up. I can remember, I was Larry Hoffman, I can remember, I think maybe Jimmy Williams, I don't know, the couple of guys. We were walking through Trafalgar Square in London. Everybody's having a great time. And there was this woman, young woman, like 20, sitting kind of in a fetal position, just weeping in the middle of the square. He kind of go, what could possibly, like, what could that possibly be? Right? I can tell you what it is. It is the end of something dark. And it's the end of a betrayal. It's the end of a thing that will not bring life. Right? So part of this for me is, you know, how much proof do you need about the alleyways in Berlin? How much proof do you need that sin destroys you? especially with the demonic, with witchcraft, how much proof do you need that this will be the end of you? Because when it's the end of you, rarely is there an escape. How much proof do you need? Right? Just kind of like... So, um, you know, Jesus says, I'm all these things. And then point six, which is, um, I'm not just here. This is the great Luther thing. I'm not just here. I'm here for you. Luther, you know, it doesn't matter that God exists. It, it's, that's, a, that's a dumb argument. There's no point in chasing that. He exists or he doesn't exist. What difference does that make? What matters is that God is here for you. The body and blood of Christ given for you, not against you. And so this great, you know, expression of Jesus, that what he comes to give you is full, robust, abundant, heavenly life. Look at the words that he used here. I've come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Right? This, these are all verses in the run-up to the question of truth with Pilate. 
So Jesus is going again and again and again and again, and he gets to Pilate, and Pilate says, none of that matters. And Jesus' reply is, it all matters. And it matters eternally, because this is eternal truth. And if you trust me, you'd find out, right? So I've come that you may have life abundantly is another word to say, for your advantage. I've come for your advantage. Isn't that great? Or I'm speaking to fill you up with joy. And you who were around long enough for Eucharistia, this is kara, um, joy, which is, goes with karas, grace, and you, goes with, you, with eucharist, the rejoicing, right? The, all these things are, but sort of, it's for your advantage, and it's so you can experience it. And what? Um, experience life. And how would you know? Because I'm willing to die for you. And it's so interesting now. If you, if you just want to judge your revolutionaries as you watch the news, just ask whether or not they're willing to die for you or they're asking you to die for them. A fairly simple diagnostic question, right? Are they recruiting you to die for them? And this is how revolutions often work. China, for example, or Russia, right? You had this bourgeois, the lead academics, and, you know, as soon as they won, what did they do? Killed them all. Because they'd just be problematic going forward. Because you don't want anybody who would think or rebel. Right? So the illusion of, this is for my advantage. It's nonsense. Just ask whether. It's the simple, basic stuff. You pick. Jesus says, I will die for you and make it all right. Option A. Option B is, you should die for me and we'll see what happens next. There are two ways of life. There is the way of life, and there is the way of death. The Didache, the earliest Christian pastoral theology. And then, you know, finally, I'm loving, and this is really the, kind of the big finish, I'm loving so that you can learn to love. The church has wasted, you know, I mean, I've often said to you, you know, the church was ahead by 16 points with two minutes to go when it blew the lead, you know. I mean, really, from the time of Constantine till, I know, pick something, through the Reformation and a bit beyond, the church controlled the world. But it could not do so honestly and mercifully. We had to become like the world, right? Priests abuse children, and so we hide them off or move them. We don't put them in jail where they belong for example. People steal funds and we act like it doesn't matter. You know, if you robbed a bank, you'd go to jail, but if you're a priest who steal, pastor steal, you kind of like, right. So here's the reason not to despair. This is probably very important to say at the end of this because you could be left feeling a bit heavy. The church will sort itself out so long as it acts like the church. When the church acts like anything else, it's going to turn into anything else. But if the church will act in light and joy, right? If the church will act in mercy and love for others, if the church is willing to spend itself for people who are lost, the church will be recognized as otherworldly 
and people will crawl through fire over broken glass to come. And if it acts just like everything else, I don't even want to come through the door. Because, you know, this has taken all morning, and i got things to do. It's going to snow Friday, and i got to get the lawn cut and stuff. <laughs> Fortunately, I have somebody to shovel. <laughs> Seven. So, um, Jesus' love gives life, and that builds trust and bestows truth. Right? So this is really simple. This is how it goes. You love people, and that's life-giving. And when you're life-giving, they begin to trust you. And when they begin to trust you, they begin to believe you. Amen. All right, so this is kind of simple. So if you all are just, and I too, I mean, I'm part of the you all, right? If we could concentrate on loving each other rather than hating each other, if we could turn the other cheek instead of you know, going on full assault, if we could learn to be merciful in a world that is merciless, right? If we could live in joy in a world that is some point between alienated, despair, and ready to kill itself, the church would flourish. Instead, we too often look like the world where we have committees and elections and candidates and if my guy wins and that guy couldn't possibly go because, you know, I might get shown up. And So I just sort of end then with this eight part, which is notice how Jesus only delivers what is life-giving. That would be a great paradigm for your church. Everything you do you, in the church, you judge by the notion of whether or not it is life-giving. You know, so you're free to kind of evaluate things. Is this the way of life? Is this the way of excellence? Is this the way of joy? Is this the way of virtue? Is this the way of light? Is this otherworldly? Right? All the things we've talked about, begin to ask yourself. Because in the end, and this is really important, these last few things, the question of truth is really the question of life. Or death. So love, you know, and trust and truth go with life. And hate and lies and betrayal Go with death. And if you don't believe that, you just need to read some history. Right? Read about all the great people who were going to save you if you would only do what they told you. Who all turned out to be liars, save for Jesus Christ. So another way to say this is, you know, this is the, 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 the test of truth is life itself. The problem, of course, is that it doesn't happen instantaneously. It's not a quick test. Right? The problem is it's difficult. Often people are against you. You know, the problem is, as we wander, speaking of which, come on, if that's not the best prayer that the church prays in the year, it's very close. There's one, one at Christmas time, too. But the prayer today, for the, all of those in the lesser venues of life, for those who have wandered, right? It's great. So love creates trust, love, I'm sorry, love creates trust, trust absorbs truth, and truth bestows life. Halfway down on number eight in one sentence. Love creates trust, trust absorbs truth, truth bestows life. 
And that's why, here's the thing, just final like pitch for the rhythm of the Christian life. I mean, this is why you can't skip church. You're, ah, you, you know, you're killing me when you, when you skip church. Not you, you're all here, but come on. You can't, you can't, like, you can't come to church once a month. Ah, you can't go to the Eucharist once a year. You can't be a miser and not tithe and not give alms. Really? 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 Come on, you can't, you can't be harsh with other people. You can't live in a merciless life. You just can't. You've got to say your prayers. If you don't say your prayers, I mean, you, you're, you're without weapons. Christ, Scripture, prayer, the liturgy and the Eucharist, tithing and alms, mercy, and a winsome witness. I said that to you the very first week I was here. 25 years later, however long it's been. Nothing has changed. The only thing that's changed is whether we do it or we don't. There is a way of life and there is a way of death. Have a pick. All right, got to go to church. Love you. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, thanks. See you soon.